Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word, leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email to let us know what you like about the show. For today's episode, you'd better hold on to your heads, dear listeners, as Ethan, David and Alex tackle a truly mind-blowing David Cronenberg film. Be forewarned that we are discussing a horror film here, and there is a bit of discussion around self-harm and violence, but it isn't anything too heavy. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, all you fellow ConSec employees, and welcome to this new episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Today, I'm joined by David Hartley and Alex Willison, and we'll be discussing a film that's very close to my heart, David Cronenberg's 1981 sci-fi horror flick, Scanners. I first saw this at the age of 18 and was immediately struck by its heady mix of psychic warfare and gory effects, including the justly famous head explosion scene. But as I grew older and I realised my own autism, the film took on a different significance. As a film about a group of people, both crippled and liberated by their difference, Scanners can be read as a parable for not only the autistic hypersensitivity to the presence of others, but the social order that shapes how differently abled individuals see themselves and their place within an abled society. In Scanners, the titular figures are the result of a drug trial gone wrong, a thalamidomide-like scandal that is amalgamated into a defence contractor for the military use of the differently abled. Does Revit Scanner Underground constitute a legitimate rebellion against the abled order? And if so, how do we understand that in the light of the neurodiversity movement and the attempt to integrate better into a neurotypical world. Join us as we tackle this question and the many labyrinthine corridors of autistic experience that Scanners opens up. But first, gentlemen, if I may, what was your introduction to Cronenberg and was this your first time viewing Scanners? Many thanks, Ethan. What was my introduction to Cronenberg? That is a good question. I think it might have been as Existence, or however you're supposed to pronounce that film. I think that might have been the first time I watched the Cronenberg. Um, again, it's been many, many years since I've seen that film. Uh, I do remember all the sort of juicy, horrible bits and pieces of that, but I do remember quite enjoying it. Um, yes, I had seen Scanners before as well, although it was so long ago that when I was re-watching it this week, I was thinking I, I, I barely remembered any of it from when I first watched it. Um, <clears throat> so it was almost like coming to this anew um, this time, which was really nice uh, in many ways, especially looking at it from a um, uh, yeah kind of neurodiversity autism point of view um, was was a really interesting um, approach to look at it. I haven't, I'm not, f um, I'm not fully up to speed on all of Cronenberg. I've seen um, Videodrome um, and The Fly, obviously, and Spider, which I think is one of his more more recent ones. 
um, which I've got somewhere behind me. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, but but I do, I do enjoy a bit of a, a bit of Cronenberg um, goriness and body horror. It's all, always fun, I think, in some ways. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I mean, this is really dredging back old memories. Um, I think I was about eleven or twelve, and I saw in the TV Times a film called Naked Lunch playing at like eleven at night. And so I decided to set up the VHS recorder very excitedly, like seeing what I'd get a glimpse of. And I was quite horrified as to what I was given. It was not what I was expecting. So it was all sort of uh, people injecting bug powder and monstrous sort of like typewriters. Um, and yeah, so, but it did really spark a fascination with the sort of weirdness of Cronenberg films. And I, I Scanners is one of my favorites. Um, it's certainly a crap film, like undoubtedly, but it's brilliant in as many measures. So, uh, you know, I, I think for a while on Facebook, I had I had um, the picture of, what's his name, Ironside, uh, burning in the, uh, in the flames uh, as my cover photo. So there's some sort of connection there. I don't know why I, I connect with this film. That, uh, that Naked Lunch story reminds me of a great Simpsons gag which where, where the boys, uh, where Bart and his crew go to uh, uh, an adult movie theatre and it's showing Naked Lunch and they walk out. Nelson turns to the sign and goes, I can think of two things wrong with that title. Yeah, I'm very pleased that you guys have a knowledge of Cronenberg already. I, I have grown to very much love his work and feel very, very close to his work. Uh, Scanners being my first Cronenberg, and it's not my favourite by a long means. I think there's, there's, as Alex rightly says, there's a lot of crap in this film. Um, a lot, a lot of crap. But um, it's also a film that has a real uh, special place in my heart for the way it almost frames or uh, frames a sort of a, a proto-autistic reading. Um, and indeed, actually, I featured it on, on my letterbox. You can find my autism core list of the top 10 films I feel that most relate to my experience of autism. And Scanners is on there uh, alongside some very unusual uh, bedfellows, including cat people. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, really pleased that we've got the opportunity to talk about uh, Scanners. So uh, in terms of sort of talking about it in terms of autism, I should probably give, for those who've not seen the film, a brief rundown of its plot, and that'll allow us to sort of move into some uh, talking about it. The plot is as follows. Uh, there, a man named Cameron Vale uh, is brought in to a uh, laboratory by a man called Dr. Paul Ruth, and it's explained that he is a scanner. Effectively, he is a individual with psychic and telekinetic powers who is able to read minds, uh, move objects, but also this comes at the price of uh, being unable to function in a social environment due to the incredible pain that comes from those interactions. Uh, he feels physically sick and as a result is, at the start of the film, a drifter. Well, Ruth, using a drug called ephemeral, turns him into effectively a corporate, a corporate agent, uh, fighting an attack by the uh, Michael Ironside's Daryl Revok, who is another scanner, who uh, wishes to bring down uh, 
the, the world order and create a race of scanners. Um, that is the basic premise of the film. There's a lot in this film which doesn't make sense, and there's a good reason for that, which was that Cronenberg was told to make the film before he'd even finished writing the script. So a lot of what was written in the film was done either the day before or on the day of shooting, which probably explains why sometimes it's a really very, very messy film. But uh, it also has received criticism for the character of Cameron Vale, who was played by a sculptor called Stephen Lack. Uh, and many people have joked about how uh, Lack is an excellent term for his acting abilities. He often seems quite wooden, shall we say. But I wanted to sort of ask you guys first, did you consider, I, I saw somewhere online uh, his performance considered as displaying autistic traits. And I was wondering whether you felt that in the case of uh, Cameron and his rather, shall we say, bland persona. It's just a really interesting question for me because, um, yeah, you know, on the surface of it, this uh, what I was thinking while I was watching, I was thinking this Stephen Lack, this actor playing this character, um, is clearly not a particularly professional actor uh, and, and just had that kind of um he's got like kind of quite quite pretty eyes like kind of big eyes and he's kind of um a, a quite a striking face so in a sort of like cinematic way he sort of fits on the screen i kind of enjoyed watching him but yeah he had this kind of sort of what you might term as wooden acting acting but it is really interesting to think of this in terms of autism because uh, often a lot of autistic people are often said to have a kind of quite flat effect or a quite a wooden effect <clears throat> in their kind of interactions uh, uh, and in their kind of, I guess, um, well, for want of a better word, a sort of a, a sort of performance of, of being a person within society, right? And, and can be accused of being quite unemotional and seeming unemotional and seeming detached in a, in a curious kind of way then. When you have uh, actors like Stephen Lack, um, who is playing, I mean, a pretty flat character in, in many respects anyway, you know, you're just sort of a fairly sort of standard protagonist character who just things happen to them um, and they have to sort of muscle their way through it all. Um, so in an interesting way, you get this kind of fairly, fairly flat and wooden performance, but it does make you then think, when when you sort of think of it in terms of autism, it's like, well, it's interesting to think that this this character may in fact have the, be this kind of and is this kind of sort of neurodivergent character because they, of their um, telepathic abilities and the fact that they are a kind of a bit of an outsider because they're a drifter at the beginning of the film. You can then start to think, well, rather than this being somebody who's maybe not a particularly good actor, this is a character who has to perform in this way to be within this society to sort of survive in this way um so it's quite an interesting it just it puts an interesting new spin on this idea of of kind of wooden flat characters i suppose in a way um and i think in these kinds of films where you're dealing with with people who are telepathic you know a lot of sort of science fiction films of this era where you're dealing with people who are telepathic or are sort of um robotic in some way that acting style does sort of appear and start to come in and it starts to be, <clears throat> I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but that kind of 
flat effect it, it, it sort of works in the way for kind of these kinds of robotic characters or characters who are in some way kind of cyberpunky or te technologically sort of linked to like computers and 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 the and the emerging sort of technologies of the of, of the era of the early 80s so yeah i don't know i don't know if i've got a, a clear point to make there but it's an interesting sort of idea to think of it in those terms rather than think of it as just someone who can't really act <laughs> i mean I, I think if we if we situate this film in the sort of early 70s and the cultural discourses that are happening around psychiatry and uh, medication. And we, we've already talked about the sort of thalidomide. Thalidomide? Thalidomide. Thalidomide. Thalidomide, yeah. <laughs> the thalidomide um, controversy or sort of disaster, really. Um, I, I think this Cronenberg's other films, this one included, are very squarely in the camp of anti-psychiatry. We have lots of psychiatric uh, sort of professionals who are treated with enormous amounts of suspicion in these films. And, you know, if we're thinking about, well, maybe what is the analogy with, we're most, it would be most appropriate um, for the scanners. I think it's unambiguously psychotic conditions. So schizophrenia, uh, schizoaffective, as I uh, have a diagnosis of as well. I think um, looking at these characters, they have to experience multiple voices uh, simultaneously, um, which obviously ties in with auditory hallucination. They are reliant on drugs that make them uh, more passive and able to integrate into society, but they're also left with a sort of a long stare, let's say, and that is very evocative of the sort of Thorazine chemical lobotomy analogy, this sort of these antipsychotics, which in the early stages, back in the 70s, were incredibly uh, soporific and really knocked you backwards. And I think it's quite plausible that Cronenberg was thinking of a way to build upon the idea of schizophrenia as a sort of science fiction basis and how that intersects with technology and psychopharmacology. That is an exceptionally fascinating look at the film. And I'm really, really glad you brought up Cronenberg in relation to uh, psychiatry and also the pharmaceutical world, because that's something which very much dominates his early Canadian works, uh, is a real distrust in the psychiatric order uh, and the very dangerous potential of both pharmacology, but also medical technology to uh, distort the human body and the human mind in particular uh, in quite dangerous and damaging ways. The one which comes to mind most is uh, perhaps the, the forerunner to this, which is his excellent Stereo from 1969, which is basically it's presented as a uh, medical report about a um, uh, a experiment achieved I, it's either through drugs or through surgery, I don't remember which one, to create a telepathic consciousness between uh, this group of subjects. And uh, of course, it being Cronenberg, it goes horrifically wrong. Uh, some of the subjects uh, resort to violence, some lose their identities in the great mass of, of identities exists in the middle of the film, but uh, notably there is this sort of overarching medical framework which desensitizes the viewer to sort of the, the effects at hand 
and instead is quite a chilling and clinical work and that's something he refers returns to over and over most recently in uh, the nest uh, from 2013. I also think uh, just to very briefly sort of uh, touch on what David said you're right about I think that's sort of very flat effect because during this era the a film which we released a year later is The Sender um, by I believe Roger Mitchell uh, which is about a gentleman who is effectively who has no personality but is uh, uh, incredibly psychically powerful uh, and uses that psychic power as an extension of his will. Patrick from 1978 is another very, very good example uh, from Australia of the same uh, sort of narrative arc. So I think there's something very, very interesting there in the, both in how medicalization works to dampen the consciousness, but also how sometimes the consciousness itself is almost arguably so overwhelming that it reduces the, the, mm. the individual to some sort of either in the case of scanners, uh, 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 an emotional, uh, a very emotionally disturbed person, or uh, in the case of the center, just a, sort of a, a, a nothingness. Um, and it's also very interesting how I, I, in my mind, how the characters around in the narrative of scanners uh, present uh, sort of view of themselves and indeed how the non-scanners view the scanners so uh, in particular Paul Ruth who is um, the shall we say the lead psychiatrist of this film this is something which uh, uh, played by um, the great Patrick McGowan of the of, of the prisoner fame and danger man uh, who is both the head of the program that uh, creates scanners but also accidentally created ephemeral which is the drug which produced the scanner movement in the first place. Um, and with sort of this sort of interest in anti-psychiatry in mind, I was wondering what you guys, how you guys felt about um, uh, Paul Ruth. Did you like him? Did you feel that he was a, um, a, a largely sympathetic character or was he perhaps a much darker and more unsettling figure? Yeah, it's interesting bringing up um, Dr. Paul Ruth because Dr. Paul Ruth because um, he's almost the contrast, isn't he, to St Stephen Lack and to Cameron Vale? Um, because Patrick McGowan has got this very uh, elaborate and emotional style of acting, that kind of very theatrical, almost Shakespearean kind of um, approach, and he, and when he's on screen with Stephen Lack and Cameron Vale, there's a there's a clear distinction between the two of them in terms of the performance of their characters. Um, I mean, he's wonderful, this Patrick Magoo, and he's great, he's really entertaining to watch, and he's great in this, and he's kind of like, you know, he's got the the beard and the big hair, and and he struts around, you know, he really commands the screen when he's on. And there's a couple of moments where he's like, there's one towards somewhere towards the end where he's um you get his internal dialogue all of a sudden very briefly and where he's sort of making a decision about what he needs to do. Interesting character as well, because he does sort of seem to be, he's this, he's this father figure, isn't he really? And I'm quite literally, he's the father of um, of Cameron and of um, Revok, who we'll get to later, and is responsible for the whole shebang of what's going on, both the, the the creation of the scanners and the kind of perpetuation of them and the plans of the, uh, the uh, how he's going to use them ultimately. So 
it's interesting because I do go. I think at the beginning I was sort of thinking, okay, this guy is a um, a good guy, and he's a, an ally, and he's a friend of the of um, Cameron's, and he will, and he's <clears throat> he's you know he's going to help him. Um, but then you get that kind of quite remarkable scene where he effectively is sort of torturing Cameron in a way, really, in terms of getting him to. So he sort of couches it as a as a training method where Cameron's tied basically tied down onto a bed and all of these people just come in and they just sit on chairs and he can just hear their voices. Cameron can hear their voices in his head and it's kind of flooding him and overwhelming him. And it's Dr. Ruth's way of tutoring Cameron to try and control his sort of scanner ability. But it's such a horrible methodology and such a torturous moment um so i think you get a good sense there of uh yeah it's interesting that you mentioned earlier on alex about this kind of anti-psychiatry stance that cronenberg is taking here and i think you can sort of see it in that moment you can see um the lengths that these kinds of psychiatric doctors will go to to attempt to a cure and b control the the patience i suppose that they have under their power um but having said that i did love watching patrick mcguin he's great <laughs> i mean uh my favorite scene with mcguin was um he's in his sort of like members club just asleep he hasn't been in oh, any yeah. scenes for about 25 minutes <laughs> he gets a phone call and he gets woken up and he's like oh yeah sorry the last act just died <laughs> But, yeah, that um, was never explained, was it? That this is why is he asleep? Yeah, um, it's hard work being a, a criminal mastermind. It's true. Well, I mean, speaking of criminal masterminds, I, I think he's very much in the model of Doctor Frankenstein. You know, mm. a, 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 a medical practitioner, a, a scientist, dabbling in forces he doesn't quite understand, um, unleashing sort of, you know, havoc, uh, whilst also trying to present a sort of thin veneer of professionalism. Um, so, I mean, it, he's very much supported uh, by this institution and sort of big tech and sort of military industrial complex behind him as well. I mean, he, he's very much a conservative character, one who has created this weapon, but actually doesn't want it to change the order of society. Whereas mm. uh, Daryl Revick the sort of rebel character, the scanner who's looking for a revolution is very much a, a sort of radical, um, sort of maybe a stand-in for a, a Marxist revolutionary uh, from the 70s, um, uh, Border-Meinhof type, you know, revolutionary. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the tendency for him to sort of slip and expose his sort of sinister underbelly is um is through it occurs throughout the film but on the surface we're met with a sort of benevolent father figure who's trying to you know keep things on in check and one of my favorite bits is one of i mean we've all talked about one of the, the, the favorite bits of having just patrick mcgoohan be patrick mcgoohan <laughs> one of my favorite the opening line i think he says is and I'll try and do it in his voice because it's so deeply ingrained on my consciousness, is him going, Mr. Vale, you are 35. How is it that you are such a piece of refuse, <laughs> a piece of human junk? It's simple. You're a scanner. And <laughs> while, while, while <laughs> I, I, I have memorised a lot of 
McGowan in this film because I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating, almost hypnotic. Um, he is, I think, my favourite performance in this film with mm. Ironside, a very close second. We'll get to Ironside in a bit. But despite me loving that line, it's a very sinister line for the very first line because it, 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 it immediately sets up in my mind the social nexus which Cameron is meant to be part of, which is that he is without ephemeral. He is, as Ruth says, he is a piece of human junk. He has no capacity to function. He is overwhelmed by stimuli and to the point where he is dangerous. For, for those who have not seen it, the first scene in the film is him effectively making a woman have a fit uh, because he can overhear her being quite derogatory towards him. And he manages to, to manifest this through his telepathy. Um, and so there's a very, very interesting strain throughout of there is a sense of the scanners, even when they are given this power and this purpose by Ruth, they are lesser than. They are to be controlled. They are to be... Uh, I mean, the opening, the, the, the famous head explosion scene, which mm. obviously is a fantastic piece of special effects by the great Dick Smith, if we strip away that, what that is, is effectively it's a military launch. It's the launch of a military product of the mm -hmm. scanner, which the the the, the bespectacled, moustached uh, victim of, of Ironside's um, uh, psychic powers uh, cops it for. But it's meant as a um, it's meant as a demonstration of the program of the right program, and so it's, I find the film in that respect, and especially McGowan, very sinister. Because it's about, it, it's not about acceptance. Uh, Magoo, uh, Ruth is not interested in acceptance. He's interested in manipulation, in my mind, and modification to his own ends. Um, but yeah, <laughs> sorry, I went off. I was going to end that on a question, but yeah, I get quite, I, this film has a lot of very complicated avenues for me. And so I find it mm. very emotive in places. Yeah, I mean, he's quite strong with his wording, isn't he? Uh, there's another a quote that I've pulled up that Paul Ruth says at one point, you know, Cameron Vale asks him, he said, you called me a scanner, what is that? And he says, you're a freak of nature, born with a certain form of ESP, derangement of the synapses, which we call telepathy. And his wording is very strong. Like he, even though he is like the progenitor, I suppose, of the scanners, and he's so invested in them and, and seems to spend his entire life um, uh, wanting to sort of... Uh, use them and, and harness their power he's very dismissive about the fact that you know they are a freak of nature that they are uh deranged individuals um but that's part and parcel of that power process when you're in that kind of a situation is that you can keep telling that person that they are broken and wrong and then that gives you that and then you position yourself as the person who will help them, who will uh, cure them, or who will uh, help them to use their powers for good, kind of, kind of thing. Um, yeah, God, sorry, Alex. Well, I mean, okay, so we've been focusing some of this derogatory language. I mean, so far we've focused on Paul Ruth, who's the ally. I mean, mm. it's the the board of directors of Comstat, or was it Comstat? Comsec, was it Comsec? It's yeah, concept. I mean, uh, they're discussing the possibility of a sort of movement 
of scanners who are organizing and one of them suggests well that's absurd um you can't get yeah. more than two of these people in a room together before they go berserk you know the absolute relentless dismissiveness yeah that that these um these stuffy old doctors feel towards the scanners is you know it's very evocative of sort of early medical theorizations of autism and um even this hostility towards the neurodiversity movement which you know maybe unfortunately um daryl uh revnik daryl revok revok yeah um michael ironside um is i mean he's basically representative of you know his closest analogy is is a sort of radical version of the neurodiversity paradigm if not slightly fascistic Mm. uh sort of uh, takeover rather than acceptance narrative um but it's i mean but it's everyone like even the other scanners uh describe i mean i, I think ethan you've already given this quote but um i think it's kim the uh, sort of fellow scanner kim Oberst, yeah yeah of uh cameron vale uh just dismisses cameron as like well you're barely human uh, at one point mm. and it yeah so this is a shocking moment it's a yeah remarkably and, bleak moment and the and and the, li- the last line that I remember is um, uh, when they one of the doctors is describing them as pathetic social misfits, unstable and unreliable. I mean, it's just, I mean, for this podcast, it's it's way too on the nose for us, you know. Like <laughs> these are the sort of prejudicial language we've heard for decades around autism and other forms of neurodivergence. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why. Increasingly, as I've gotten older, I've, I won't say I agree with Daryl Revick's position, but I think it's a really interesting position. Now, uh, for reference, we should also say, if we stumble over the names, blame Cronenberg. Cronenberg has a bizarre thing for extremely strange, almost never-before-seen names. Uh, <laughs> in this, we have Revick. Uh, we've got Cameron Vale, Kim Oberist in... Uh, the one that always uh, uh, gets me is in um, The Brood, where you've got uh, Hal Raglan, as played by Oliver Reed, uh, in, between a, in between an alcohol binge. Um, but yeah, for reference, the overall aim, we're going to spoil the film for you, but go and see Scanners anyway. <laughs> um, the overall aim, of uh, Revick's plan is he has somehow taken control of a um, chemical company, uh, which is uh, sort of, uh, originally was Paul Ruth's. And what he has done is he is sending out ephemeral to doctors across the country uh, who will inject mothers with this as like a sort of a, a drug to help with morning sickness in the same way that thalidomide worked, what it will do is create a, a race of scanners of which he can use them to take over North America, is the, is the idea, um, with surely the world following. Um, and, uh, and while obviously it is a stereotypically, you know, evil master plan, uh, it's also, he, he also presents a really fascinating uh paradigm he's sort of a, a sort of a flip side to ruth who is so negative about the scanners where he is like no we are superior we are different we are powerful people fear us ruth fears us we should take this on as our own um 
we, we should accept our power and claim it and terrify people with it. And I think there's something very, very interesting. I think there's something of that all the way through the film, especially, I feel, for me, the scenes where Vale or uh, well, Vale in particular uses his psychic powers. There's something incredibly thrilling about it for the, for the way it manifests sort of repressed frustrations and rages that certainly I felt, uh, the, 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 certainly the, the, the intense desire to sort of push someone away, which is obviously almost aggressively on the nose here, uh, including the, the, the scene in the, art, in the art studio. And so I, I find myself increasingly like, yes, Revok is, Revok is a political hardliner, at the end of the day, his, his, his conception of politics, such as it is, is aggressively hardline to the point of being fascistic. Can't say that word properly. But it's also so, it's, it, it seems in some respects almost preferable to what Ruth puts together, and even in some respects what Obrist has. Mm. His Obrist's scanner circle is... What is, a, is a support system, certainly, but we don't know what it's for, we don't know why it's there. And at the end of the day, it's kind of ineffective, especially against um, a shotgun. <laughs> to put it bluntly, there is a lot of shotguns in this film. Yeah, loads, yeah. Including the one that they used to blow up their, their head, I think, as part of that special effect. I think that, there was a, that was a shotgun effect, wasn't it? That, is, that, is, that was just a shotgun pushed into some packed meat. Yeah, by from what I remember of the special effects, it's pretty incredible. Um, no, but it, you're absolutely right. I, I think it's interesting because it there, there is an attempt in this film to, um, to to show some alternative possibilities aside from Revok. I mean, like, and Revok yeah, is just the extreme um, villain and. Uh, you know, is almost a kind of almost Bond villain levels of like we are going to take over the world by by you know the sinister process of of changing every you know of sending this drug out and changing everyone and be, taking over as scanners and and he has a big kind of speech doesn't he at the end Revok about um, uh, bringing the world to their knees or something and and we'll be the we'll be the we'll build an empire and all this kind of stuff right um, <clears throat> which is extreme but. There is, yeah, as you mentioned, there is um, uh, Kim Obrist's small, smaller group who are sort of sit around and kind of communally scan with each other in an almost kind of religious sort of way, really. Um, but we're never quite sure what their intentions are, but they seem a little less extreme compared to Revok. And then the other one is um, Benjamin Pierce, who is the artist. And, and what we get here is this character Benjamin Pierce who is been in a an institution but now has uh, become an artist and is creating quite strange uh, enormous sort of sculptures of heads and doctors and uh, psychiatric patients very striking interesting kind of you know um psychiatric institution art kind of thing really and is and has um exhibitions on and people go and spend lots of money on them and so on and uh, Cameron Vale manages to track track down Benjamin Pierce and talk to him and for briefly for a moment there there's this kind of almost this glimpse of uh, a neurodivergent person who has been able to navigate or or her, I guess is a survivor I suppose of the institutional processes and has managed to use art to 
almost emerge out the other side. Now, this this Benjamin, when when this Benjamin Pierce character came on the screen, I thought, okay, well, here this is the person that is feels the most autistic in some ways. Um, I, I felt that that performance of that I can't remember the actor's name. I had it written down somewhere. I'll have to look it up in a minute. Um, that performance was more autistic seeming in some ways and that a connection that that character has with their artwork um as a way of being able to control their emotions and control their abilities their psychic abilities and the telepathic abilities oh thanks alex has just put it into the chat robert silverman that's the that's the actor's name robert silverman is benjamin pierce um this all gets all, what i'm building up to is this, this all gets ruined because they get that during that art during that meeting between Cameron Vale and Benjamin Pierce, it gets interrupted by people with shotguns who just like kill Benjamin and shoot everyone up. And, you know, Cameron has to use his abilities to escape and all this kind of stuff. Um, but we do get for a moment, a glimpse of, a, of another possibility of this kind of use of art to be part of a society. Um, it's not perfect. You know, this bit, Benjamin Pierce character is still very, isolated difficult to get to reach still clearly has difficulties at navigating life but there was a glimpse there of some other possibility for the scanners or for the the neurodivergent characters and it was interesting that he chose sort of art as the route for that and i did read somewhere that there was almost a you could almost sort of read benjamin pierce that benjamin pierce character as cronenberg in a way of like himself putting kind of artistic vision and artistic processes into the film to say this is a this is a possible route through this kind of madness that we're in i guess but again that ties into the sort of anti-psychiatry movement of the 60s and 70s where you know in london at the philadelphia association they had all these sort of communal houses where people would go there and go through their so-called freakouts which were yeah. basically psychotic episodes without medication or a limited medication away from the institutions um and it was often sort of heralded as these creative alternative spaces with these i mean there's a famous story of one of the residents starting off by smearing their feces on the wall and rd lang introduced some paintbrushes and materials to her mm. and by the end of it she was a sort of um internationally recognized artist painter um and so it's sort of there's this whole folklore around the idea of sublimation of uh, sort of channeling trauma into artwork that um, is sort of strongly advocated for away from the institutional and uh, sort of psychopharmacological approaches to dealing with neurological difference. I suppose I've actually never thought of Pierce in that respect, actually. Um, so, yeah, I was, I, I suppose I was very interested in how you felt about the character of Pierce, because when I have seen him in the past, prior to this, I've always been struck by, fundamentally, I found Pierce quite a sad character. I felt not because, because his art seems to be, it's, it's a therapeutic outlet, but it's one that never seems to fully resolve for him. He says his art, his art keeps him sane, and there's the scene obviously where he sits in the, the giant head, which is effectively sort of a contemplation zone for him. But it never seems to abate the fact that he, you know, he is effectively, I think, living without that medication of ephemeral. So he is just simply constantly bombarded by those noises, which is why the, the, uh, the gallery owner never sees him. Nobody sees him. He lives in a shack in the woods. I don't think he's a scanner. 
I thought the whole, I thought the point was that he was the only person who wasn't a scanner who had had direct relation, a relationship with uh, Dal Revnik. That's interesting because I viewed him as a scanner because, um, because there's the scene where I suppose where he does uh, communicate with um, Cameron Vale where, as he's dying on the floor. And um, so I think it was more just sort of an association I made because there's also the, there's a, there are the black and white photos of him in the institution. Yeah, so he was definitely institutionalised and I think that yeah. was where he met Dal yeah. Revok. But... Yeah, right. that makes sense. And yeah. I think the reason he is approached rather than anybody else is because he's not a scanner and he's not dangerous to Vale. That's interesting. Uh, I get that I now. Never, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'd never thought of it like that. I, I mean, mean, we shouldn't think too much about the plot construction. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the film helps no. us to write. No, 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 no. As I as I said, this was a film very much made uh, as it uh, written as it was being made, and actually, that's very interesting that we talk about. We've talked about Revok. One of my favourite stories about the film is one I put on my first letterbox review. The character of Revok was never really supposed to be the character he becomes. Originally, the only scene he was supposed to appear in was that very famous head explosion scene, uh, the, the mechanics of which we've discussed, but also I wanted to talk a little bit later about the, the sound effects and the, the, the sonic world of this film. But mm. apparently, Cronenberg um, liked Ironside and Ironside's performance so much that he just kept writing him in until eventually we get to that final scene, which is a massive exposition dump, which wraps up all the fight wraps up all the plot points but only does so uh at, at the expense of like dramatic action um so i think there's something very very interesting there is that it it's it's as much a it, the film almost is an organic object in as much as it just kept ha having to grow from this really frustrating uh shooting for credit movie by all accounts it was a nightmare and McGurin in particular was really hard to work with because he was an alcoholic and he would not be able to work in the afternoons. So that's, I think there was something there. Um, yes, aside from that, I do want to talk about the sound in this film because I think this is, has one of my favourite soundscapes in any film. Uh, it's composed by Howard Shaw, who does a lot of um, both works. I don't know if he did the most recent Crimes of the Future, um, but he did basically every Cronenberg film up until the early 90s, if not the, the actual early 90s. And in this one, his score is primarily electronic, it's primarily synthesizers as we fitting in 80s uh, sci-fi. But there's also this interesting use of drone noises, of snarls and gurgles, uh, usually in the moments where scanning is actually taking place. And I find it one of the most interesting sort of depictions of that sort of cacophony of noise that I feel when I am experiencing a sensory overload. And I was wondering, um, especially you, Alex, uh, how did, did this, did this uh, sort of sensory, these sort of, how did these sort of noises feel, I suppose? Did they add something to the experience? Did you feel connected to the film in in, in any in any extra way because of those noises? Um, yeah, that's that's sort of where I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, I do. I have a, a sort of broad sort of sensory. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit sensitive to sound. Uh, I don't think 
uh, it's too bad. I get, I'm just basically a grumpy old man sometimes and I don't like noisy neighbors and things like that. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's really only when I'm, uh, close to psychosis that I've ever experienced sort of hypersensitivity to sound and sort of sensory differences in a sort of real tangible way. So I, d I don't think I can really connect in this, in this, in the way that, uh, um, an autistic might sort of resonate with the idea of a constant sort of sensory um, difference compared to what you know happens for the neurotypical population. But for me, I thought the sound design, yeah, it's good, it's punchy, it's simple, um, but that's it. It's, it's, it's almost two-dimensional. We sort of cycle between this sort of droning march of you know, like over and over again, the same um, melody. Uh, every time there's a sort of major punctuation point in the plot. Uh, and then we cycle back to like scanning squeaks and like high pitched noises as people's heads get ripped off and uh, they start pointing shotguns at themselves. So I, I, I think it's really effective, but in the way that a sort of punk single is, you know, it's the, the ideas are so simple. Uh, oh, I can see that. I can see that. Certainly, yeah, certainly it is. It's, it is very, I think it's very on the nose, which I think seems to be a, a reoccurring theme <laughs> in, in, in this podcast. It is very on the nose. But yeah, I, uh, ha, yeah, having having taken in what you said, it is probably more, it's an autistic sort of sensibility because it de there is that sort of, there's that echoey growliness to it, which is, it, it's very straightforward, but at the same time, it does feel very, very close to what it feels like. And I suppose there's also the thing of, um, it's in probably incredibly hard to depict telekinetic mm. or psychic behavior in a way that isn't fundamentally quite goofy. And while I'm not saying that the film entirely succeeds in that, I think certainly you can see some of the sequences a bit daft. Certainly some of the scanner sequels. Oh yes, dear listener, there were sequels. Uh, take the, take the, um, take the scanning propensities a bit too far. I think in the second one, there's a scene where a man happily explodes pigeons using his psychic <laughs> powers. Uh, so, so we're not exactly talking great, great experimental art here, but yeah, I, I find that, that I, I find that it's sort of directness and simplicity to be really useful in conveying that sort of narrative thrust of this is the scanners, this is how it feels to be in their head, this is what it feels like to do what they do. One of the great joys of this film is the, uh, the, those various um, shots of people scanning or being scanned. Um, the, the gurning that goes on on the faces of the actors is just wonderful. I, I enjoyed every moment of that. Of course, ridiculous. And ridiculous in the only way that a kind of, uh, a, a sort of 70s slash 80s um, fairly low budget sci-fi can be in that kind of just wonderful sort of tradition of wobbly sets and, 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 you know, rubbishy aliens, the, the gurning on the faces of, of their various actors is great. And that's where I guess, <clears throat> I mean, I'd have to go back and listen to the score again. So I wasn't really paying that much attention to it. I don't think at the time when I was watching, but um, that's when it's doing its work, isn't it? I suppose when the actors are working hard to sort of throw their faces into various scanning shapes and the the <clears throat> the music and the score will be working hard just to say 
there's something happening here between these two people's brains in case you didn't get it <laughs> um but oh my god all of those those faces are brilliant you just comp compile a kind of mosaic of them all that would be wonderful yeah there are i think there are a lot of them and i think um so the, the thing is is that i divide do i uh, a genuine source of pleasure from mm. watching the effort of people scanning because it's it, there's a sense of really being immersed in the in the for me being immersed in the moment of being immersed in having that power to 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 to, to manipulate things when you would so desperately want to but are unable to in real life having said that i do think that michael ironside in the final scanner battle mm. which is which is a strange, strange sequence. It's a brilliant sequence, but it's it's slightly ruined by his quite aggressive gurning and sort of nostril flaring, mouth clenching. It's a it's a fascinating sequence for sort of the way it suggests consciousnesses can be intermingled and one soul, one, one mind can enter another body effectively, which is which is what happens. But yeah, there's it's um. It's almost like they're arm wrestling. Like mm. yeah, you can see their too. faces. Like one of them scanning the upper hand for a moment, yeah. the other one suddenly like looks a little weak, yeah. and then the tables turn. Yeah. <laughs> there is a lot. There's a lot to that to it, actually. Um, and it's certainly, to be fair, you, you say that they do have those very prominent veins which appear in their hand and start sort of spouting blood everywhere. So it's, mm. it's a real, it's a real film about effort, I suppose, and sort of like bodily physical effort. Yeah. Um, especially the bit where Cameron Vale in the final battle like rips chunks of his own face off because yeah. he's so compelled to do so by uh, Daryl's psychic powers. It's 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 a daft film. Fundamentally, this is a very daft film, and I'm aware that I read a great deal more into this than probably has ever existed in this film. But I think it's a really really interesting film when we think about autism. Um, <laughs> But there's also it's just related to that. There's also it's interesting to think of the the sort of the I guess the aesthetics of things like heads exploding and vein veins or like lines appearing on like you know bumping out of flesh on 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 people's heads and so on, being quite evocative of <clears throat> the intensity I guess of autistic ex experience sometimes and the uh, sensory uh, overload and perhaps meltdown. Um, and how that maybe feels like one of the other films that we've we've considered on this podcast um in fact i think it was our second or third episode was um pie by darren aronofsky um and there is some similarities with pie and this film in some respects because the the main character of that film um struggles a lot with what's going on inside of his head and is um there's a there's a scene in that film where he basically takes a drill to his own head uh, to release the pressure of of the intensity of everything that's happening inside of his brain and there is something to be said for the the, the, the repeated aesthetic of that in his scanners i mean of course there's also the point that revok has a um basically got a hole in his in his forehead from where he you know self uh, trepanned himself whilst whilst in the uh, institution and and uh, to, to sort of release that pressure. So there's there's an interesting um, visual metaphor, I suppose, going on in terms of yeah the intensities that autistic and other neurodivergent people who feel these kinds of 
the pressures of the world inside of your head and outside of your head pushing into your sort of brain and your mind um and like, how that must feel right no i um, and i think the science fiction elements are very very interesting here as well because it's one of I think it's probably along with maybe dead, um, something like, I'm going to say dead rings, but it's not really sci-fi. Um, it's possibly Cronenberg until maybe crimes of the future, uh, 22. It's one of his most overtly science fiction films because he very rarely uses the, 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 I think he very rarely uses the mechanisms of science fiction, uh, and in a in sort of a very, uh, as an integral element of the plot, he gets something like the fly, but that's about the repercussions of a, a, a medical experiment, not the the medical experiments themselves, which is something which appears in stereo a little bit, but I think a, a fair bit in scanners as well. So, yeah, it, there's, I think there's probably a lot to be said about Cronenberg and his relationship to science fiction, well, existence, obviously, being the other very big sci-fi film for him. But yeah, his, 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 he has always been more, there's the science fiction element, but it's more explicitly hover than, than, than anything else. Uh, I, I always find Scanner a little bit, Scanner's a little bit of a, not an anomaly, but an interesting offshoot of our early Cronenberg era. I think one thing I read in your letterbox review, Ethan, which I don't think we've really looked at today is the Andrew Wakefield autism vaccine yes. sort of scandal. Yes. Um, we should this... talk about that actually, because that's really, I would be really interested to. Mm. Yeah, well, it's your point really. So why don't you make it? <laughs> uh, well, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll try. Um, so for those, oh, I imagine those who have listened to the podcast would know this, that um, um, there has been for the last there's been a resurgence in the last five or ten years around the myth that autism is caused by the MMR uh, vaccine. And the, the, the idea that, that, that autism is a medical condition, shall we say, a, well, a developmental disability, that is caused by these, uh, these, these, these uh, heavy metals or whatever you want to call it that, that exists within these vaccines. Obviously this has now developed into a far more insidious and wide-ranging um, belief system that, that, that thinks all vaccines are fundamentally terrible, but it started with autism. And I found that, I, I, I found that the films, it's, it's in that interest in sort of pharmacology, which, which you brought up Alex earlier, it's, it's in that interest of what if the medicines we took were dangerous for us? What if the medicines had unaffected side effects? And it's, it's also climbing with the thalidomide scandal there. And I think it's also a reflection of how a neurotypical society uh, fundamentally fears difference, especially you know, a neurodiverse difference because it provides challenges uh, to their actions that they may not have intended and they are scared of the, the reprisals effectively. And so that's really what was going on in my mind in relation to sort of the Andrew Wakefield stuff. It was, um, I suppose, the, the danger of going down that road in my mind uh, on, on rereading my own review is the fact that um, some people might take that as, a, an, as uh, I'm a, a almost tacit endorsement of that sort of conspiracy 
um, which is not my intention, but I can certainly see how that might be uh, the case. Well, the, the narrative structure relies on the, on the same neurotypical anxiety. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, so. and the, um, Flamidahide, flamidahide. <laughs> flamidamide. 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 The flamidamide. Oh my goodness. That scandal yeah. Uh, yeah. really did happen in the yeah. 60s and it was, um, you know, widespread and, and uh, caused um, uh, physical disability amongst a, an entire generation of children. Um, so, I mean, you know, there are those, there were real reasons for making films about those sorts of anxieties in the seventies. And this just, uh, this narrative took hold and has been rehashed in the real world, um, particularly by Andrew Wakefield, um, uh, connecting the sort of, uh, rapid increase in autism diagnoses, which were caused by better education and changing diagnostic categories, um, and linking it to sort of medical technology. Uh, particularly vaccines, which is, as we all know now, hopefully, mm. was bullshit. <laughs> well, the problem is we don't all know that because they, the the anti-vaccine movement is 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 rampant and still rampant and still huge. Um, and Wakefield enjoys a level of almost godlike success. Um, he's currently still, I think, he's still in America, um, yes, yes, where yes. he's also. Is he still married to? No, no uh, they divorced. No, they divorced to. They divorced. Um, what's her name now? I've forgotten her name. El McPherson. El McPherson. That's right. It's just such a strange. He's had such a strange story. That man. Um, yeah. He's been struck off as well, right? Oh, he's been struck oh, off. Yeah, he, he was struck off much, ages ago. Pretty much instantly after the uh, the scandal of the uh, the MMR um, vaccine. Yeah, he falsified evidence as well. Yeah, he falsified evidence, and he uh, yeah, it was all. I mean, he was in a, in a, an interesting way. He's similar to 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 Dr. Ruth in this film. You know, he he sort of manipulated the data and and uh, um, yeah, and and was looking for. A, do we need to say allegedly? Allegedly, that... maybe I don't know. Yeah, let's just <laughs> no, he, that... he definitely manipulated. There's there's repeated things that said he manipulated. But well, he was again... looking for this. He was looking for that answer, wasn't he? It was that yeah. that was the the issue. Yeah, because he was working on a vaccine that would have replaced the MMR. That's vaccine. right. So yeah. effectively it was a, a smear campaign. Yeah. In the same way that in some respects Ruth and Wakefield have a economic personal gain to be had by their own uh industrial works. For example, um Ruth in particular, uh after he creates FMR and the side effects happen, he is bought up by a uh he's bought up he, his his company is bought up by a Comsec, uh, he becomes one of the board members, and yeah, he 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 lives a very happy uh, life, basically militarizing his own mistakes. Mm. Which is not to say that, which is not to compare neurodiverse people with mistakes, but his work has this unexpected side effect, which is to create this race of, uh, this this um, selection of individuals. So it's a very I think it, it, it comes into line with that interest in pharmacology, but also the um, the, the film's sort of interest in sort of ableist language and the idea of uh, a um, yeah not believe basically not believing the disabled and treating them as second mm. class citizens to be patronised or controlled. It's also interesting to 
it's also just to sort of to, to reflect i guess on like what the, <clears throat> the i guess the almost the legacy or the ethical legacy of of this type of science fictional thinking has had on the public consciousness that that would make something like um the mmr scandal um becomes such sort of uh, like feverishly sort of believed by people in the, at the time there's there was the i don't know whether you know science fiction of this era um has kind of i don't know instills a certain has instilled a certain level of paranoia in people about uh the nefarious nature of of pharmacology or of doctors of scientists of um the fact that they're sort of working against us rather than for us these people who are supposed to be um creating things that help our health are instead actually experimenting on us or creating uh problems in society which you know is 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 there's a certain amount of truth to that because there have been scandals about that but that does then add to this paranoia that people have um and the upshot of that is that uh you get the situations like the mmr vaccine and then the one one of the other things i wanted to mention was that the slight difference here is that the, the, the andrew wakefield uh, mmr vaccine scandal was to do with um with was to do with parents making the, the decision to give the mmr vaccine to their ch child and then and then the child developing autism from that point on it's all nonsense it's not how it happens um here instead we have um doctors administrating administering drugs to pregnant women and then the the the, the unborn child then developing into into to becoming a scanner and there's that quite interesting scene in the um uh towards the end when um uh obris and cameron vale go uh to see one of these doctors and there is a pregnant woman in the waiting room and the pregnant on un the unborn child starts scanning obris and she sort of feels herself being scanned by this unborn child so what this also uh taps into as well then is is this idea that um it made it reminded me of the refrigerator mother theory of the idea that um the uh one of the causes of autism so to speak is that that was believed for a long time this is prior to andrew wakefield was that the the mother um was not loving or caring enough to her to her unborn child and then to her child after it was born causing that child to regress emotionally and become autistic and this was another theory that held a lot of weight and i think that that theory the refrigerator mother theory only added to um the uh the sort of discourse around the mmr vaccine because it became less about um the danger well it was about the sort of so-called dangers of the vaccine but also about the, the decisions of parents to 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 put this thing inside of a child and risk them becoming unhealthy or becoming autistic or disabled um and the kind of the the sort of parent blaming that went on in there the mother blaming in particular that goes on uh in that in that scenario so there was an interesting line there an interesting moment there with the the the, the unborn child being the scanner um that reminded me of all of those kinds of debates and discourses as well well i mean 
blaming pharmacology uh, certainly shifts the shifts the responsibility away from parents, and you can mm. see why that narrative had such sort of meme, viral meme qualities amongst those communities. You know, it was very appealing to be able to to ex blame That's a true. sort of a large capitalist force. Um, uh, but system, I think, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, we were talking about whether or not this sort of anxiety is still ever present in horror and other as other sort of fictional forms i think the emphasis has shifted away from medicine and towards big tech mm. um you know with things like black mirror and other narratives around these sort of anxieties about the rain technology is changing us and i think what's interesting about that is that a lot of the heads of those companies are somewhat sort of like Dal Revick type characters. You know, we have the Elon Musks of this world, the Bill Gates and the um, Zuckerbergs, who many people either, or we either know explicitly, such as Elon Musk, or we, lots of people suspect other sort of tech heads are autistic themselves. Mm. Um, and so there is this sort of like revolutionary technology um, uh a sort of disturbing and uh, sort of turbulent force in the world, uh, rebuilding us in in their image. That sort of echoes uh, Michael Ironside's character's motivations. I thought. I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty out there take. <laughs> but, uh, what do you guys think no, of it? It's a, no, it's a really interesting take. I think. It's a, I think. How do I phrase it though? I think. I think the thing is, is that people like. Musk in particular, Musk is always someone who really, really interests me because of not just the autism, but because of sort of certainly, certainly I think the shadier parts of, of his character. He, he in himself is almost, he, he, he is Revok, certainly, but he's also Comsec. He is that large, nef vaguely nefarious sort of business which controls a great deal of an industry has sort of and has a sort of faceless nightmarish automata about it and i think something and i think that's something which i'm not sure if you can see it in 80s sci-fi i'm not a particular particular expert in that so i think i'd have to defer to, to to david on that but yeah i think the 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 emphasis has shifted away from sort of like there being a clear individual mad scientist now to being these, as you say, Alex, massive nefarious technological companies uh, enacting strange and unsettling um, programs. The other one which comes to mind is Lee Wannell's two films, The Invisible Man from 2019, I think, no, 2020, and Upgrade in particular, which is about uh, a gentleman who is uh, basically given an AI implant after a terrible accident and it slowly takes him over. And that's from another nefarious uh, tech company. But I'm interested to hear what you think on that one, uh, David. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, I mean, um, I think that science fiction has always been interested in the, in the, the, the nefarious Tech company. I mean, I guess the, the 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 one that I'm drawing from my brain at the moment is. Um, I mean, I'm I'm the, there's 
not a day goes by when I don't think about Blade Runner, but um, Blade Runner uh, came out at the a very similar time to to um, Scanners. Um, you know, it was only a year later, and in some respects, um, bears some um, bears some resemblance. I think in some in some respects, like the the character of Roy Batty from um, Blade Runner is in, is a kind of revoc character in many ways as well, although it's a bit more sympathetic. I think. Um, but I think particularly of Tyrell from um, Blade Runner, who is the the head of the corporation who makes the replicants, the robots, cyborgs, um, who is this kind of um, godlike figure who has a, 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 a kind of technological control over the well, it, it, you know, it's the head of the Tyrell Corporation, and 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 they are kind of the most powerful uh, corporation that exists in this kind of work, the world of Blade Runner. Um, and then later in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which was much more re- recently um, in uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, sequel, <coughs> and the Tyrell Corporation is gone, but there are there's another corporation in its place, um, and. Um, and yeah, and I think there is that you know science fiction. I think maybe it is at this point in the kind of early '80s when you get the emergence of this subgenre of cyberpunk, um, and cyberpunk has always been um, uh, singularly almost fixated on the ills of the uh, technocratic future of um, corporations leading the sort of running the ruling the world and uh, ruling the money of the world and the and the problems that that causes and creates um, um and and i was thinking a lot about uh cyberpunk issues when we were watching scanners because it is a kind of a cyberpunky kind of film um i mean cyberpunk as a term didn't really come into play until a little bit later into the 80s uh particularly via the writing of william gibson um particularly the novel neuromancer um, and it was Blade Runner and Neuromancer really that became the kind of progenitors of of the cyberpunk um, subgenre. But I think Scanners is in in and amongst there as well because there's a lot in scan in here about um, uh, particularly about uh, I mean thinking particularly of the the point where um, Cameron has, is having to scan his way into the computer system um, as you know the um, Doctor Ruth tells him that not only can he scan other brains he can also scan computers because computers are like nervous systems so you can get into them as well and there's a fairly long and i felt a little bit tedious sequence of him trying to sort of get into this computer system which must have looked amazing at the time but i think for us now it's like okay go get on with it but nevertheless there is this like clear connection being made here between these this new I, i suppose mutant race of people who can do telepathy connecting them with the emergent technology of the era, which was computers and computing, and take that all the way up into our present day moment. Yes, that's where we kind of are with um, these uh, big tech companies, um, with our Elon Musk's and our Jeff Bezos's and Mark Zuckerberg's, who are these slightly shiny figureheads at the tops of the of the chain and our science fiction is is interested in that but what's interesting as well is that the flip side of that is that there are plenty of people out there who love these people and and you know there are lots of people who follow elon musk like he is the kind of um the savior that's someone who is going to take us to mars or is going to like completely um solve the climate crisis by some you know flick of his wand um 
<clears throat> which is unlikely. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but yeah, but what I wanted to also say there is it makes me think of um, the analogy I always think of with, with Elon Musk in, in uh, contemporary cinema is Tony Stark in the Marvel movies. So there is, in a sense as well, science fiction, our present day science fiction, uh, the big budget stuff is often celebratory of this world as well and 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 sees it as a kind of uh, uh as as it having a potential to still having a potential to sort of progress us on into a kind of utopian vision rather than keeping us cowed under a sort of dystopia um yeah i don't know it's it's very interesting it does also mean that, that sequence which is one of my favorites uh, does also have the beautiful image of the smoking telephone as it slowly grips into into sort of a plastic mess and then it explodes. It's a very surreal shot. But, um, yeah, I think as, as a closing image, I think the idea of that melting telephone and the, the dangers on the other side of it is an excellent way to end. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, we hope you have enjoyed this episode on Scanners. If you have any uh, follow-up uh, thoughts, questions, ideas, uh, our email address uh, will be available at the end of the podcast. Um, and that basically leaves me to say it's goodbye from me. Uh, it's goodbye from David. Bye. And it's goodbye from Alex. See ya. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.